Hey, church. How you going? Who's glad to be at church this morning? Good. I love going to church. It's so cool. Um, it is. It's great. There's no place I'd rather be on a Sunday morning. Uh, it's my seven-year-old's birthday today. Uh, we, had a, we had a birthday party yesterday. So uh, we had, I don't know how many little girls running around our house. It was carnage. Uh, that's right. Uh, so... I really, I, I, could, I should be in bed just relaxing and, and recuperating, especially when you lost an hour of sleep. Yeah, but long evenings, barbecue season is coming. Come on. Yeah, although, although there's some people in the church I know that barbecue year-round. Uh, it's just, uh, just outdoors. Outdoor cooking is just the way it happens, regardless of whether it's raining. Uh, yeah. Hey, we're talking praise and worship. Praise and worship, and uh, it's, it's an exciting topic. It's, it's an interesting topic because nowhere in the New Testament is it kind of prescribed and told how we should praise and worship. Like it's actually, it's, and it's, it's interesting because, you know, we're, we're told a lot of, we're taught a lot of things. We're taught about our, you know, uh, our finances, our morality, our relationships, our, uh, you know, our identity, all those things. But when it comes to praise and worship, the, the New Testament's pretty quiet, which is interesting because in the Old Testament, it was very prescribed. They were, t- you know, there were, there's, there's chapters and chapters about the building that the worship happens in, and then the clothing that the priests wear, and then the, the stuff that they have in the temple that they're supposed to, you know, pretty much the staging. Uh, there's this chapters about that, and then there's chapters about, um, you know, what sacrifices to bring, and what is appropriate, and what is, like, it, it's very prescriptive. Uh, and, and it's interesting, because there's all that in the Old Testament, and then we come to the New, and Jesus comes, and then uh, there's pretty much nothing. So how do we how do we do this? What 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 do we do? It's a bit of a quandary for us in post New Testament. That's us, the church. Like, how are we supposed to do it? The closest we actually get to any kind of definition is is Jesus when he says in John four, and we'll read it out in verse twenty three. He says, "Yet a time is coming, and has now come, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit." And as worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. Which is interesting because there's all this law and all this prescription and all this do this and don't do that and have this and wear this and all this. And then it's just like, well, it's just worship. It's in spirit and in truth. Just however you like. Just worship. Which is actually very freeing. And it's actually, it's beautiful. It's, a, it's an image of, of what Christ does in our lives. Because we don't live under the law anymore. We live through the Spirit. We live through God. And, 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 and so there's a sense that actually there's a, there's a freedom there. That we can worship just in any way we like. As long as we do it in spirit. And in truth, and that's an it's a beautiful idea that actually worship is just our spirit touching the spirit of God. That's actually what what worship is: it's our spirit reaching out and touching heaven, touching God, and Him coming and touching us. That's why we take time on a Sunday morning to to have that space, to have those moments where we raise our hands and close our eyes and just have that. 
where we actually get to listen to the kol Yahweh, the, the, the voice of God. Actually, that's what worship is, listening, hearing the voice of God. The who we worship, well, it's, it's pretty clear. The New Testament is pretty clear on that too. Jesus, when he was tempted by the devil uh, to, to bow down and worship him, in Matthew 4, 10, Jesus has said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So it's pretty clear who we worship. We worship God. And there's a priority in worship as well. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And they were were trying to trip him up. But Jesus answers this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. If you think about the order, I think there's a significance there, that Jesus says you worship him first with your heart and with your soul. That's, that's, that's worship. When we, when, we fought, when, we, when we love God with all that we are, that's worship. And actually, that's the priority. Because too often in the church, we get, oh, we've got to serve God. And that's like our mind and that's our strength. And we, we love God in those as well. But actually, first, it flows from our spirit. That flows from our heart towards Him, and and and, and if we if we just end up serving Him, that that's a form of idolatry, because we're all about our actions and our deeds. But actually, that's not the way it's supposed to be. Our activity becomes the enemy of adoration. If if it's if it's all about service, then our activity becomes the enemy of our adoration. And actually, Jesus says, no, no, you adore God first. You love him with your heart, your heart and your soul first. And out of that, you'll love him with your mind and, your, and with your strength, you will serve him. But it's got to start in your heart. So, that, so, so that's kind of the, the heart of what we do. But how do we do it? I still haven't found a, you know, this is what you do. These are the, these are the, this is what you wear, this is uh, the things that you say or do or, uh, you know, that's not there. I mean, the closest we get, uh, it kind of Paul, in Paul's letter, letters, uh, Paul wrote a lot of the New Testament, and he's often starts or ends his letters with, uh, praise be to God and praise be to Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So it's, it's not to say that, that worship isn't in the New Testament, it's throughout it. It's just the how isn't really there. Colossians 3.16, this is kind of the closest we get. It says, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. So there's that whole thing, singing from the Spirit again. Singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. So we sing, and we sing with gratitude. That's kind of about as prescriptive as it gets in the New Testament. I love how the message puts that. It says that you sing your hearts out. Sing your hearts out to God. That's how we worship. What do we worship to, though? You know, the church has got really hung up about this. Like, it wasn't that long ago that, that, that drums are from the devil. Uh, and that, that, you know, no, Ross would be like the, you know, <laughs> I don't know, I'm not going to say what Ross would be <laughs> for playing drums in church. But, uh, you know, it, it's silly. You can worship to Handel's Messiah, uh, you know, the Hallelujah Chorus, or you can worship to prophesy by Planet Shakers like we did this morning. And actually, it doesn't matter. Both of those are legitimate songs to worship God to. What matters 
is your heart. What matters is whether you do it with spirit and in truth. And both of those songs can be sung without that. You can go through the motions singing any song. <laughs> it's whether we genuinely reach out in our spirit and to, and, and to touch the heart of God. Because I, I know, because I've done it before myself. We can be half-hearted. We can just kind of rock up and go, oh, I guess I just made it to church on time. That's cool. And uh and or you've had a stressful morning getting the kids ready and, and your heart's not there and you realize you've sung two songs and you couldn't actually tell anyone what they were and the words have kind of just washed over you. But, uh, you know, it's, it's easy to come into that space. Hopefully, though, because that's why we come to prayer meeting. I tell you, I, I, was, ex- I was excited. I, I looked around prayer meeting. And I did a week count up. We had like uh, 22 or three people in prayer meeting. I was like, come on. It was a few years ago. That was our church, uh, and that, and that's and that, that that's that's our prayer meeting, and, and that that sets a platform. The spirit that's been moving here this morning began when people came and they prayed on your behalf, they worshipped on your behalf, they sought God on your behalf, so that when you come and you come, you know, not that filled up and not that encouraged, there is already something here that you can step into. I encourage you, come into that space, lead in that space, come to prayer meeting, 9.15 every Sunday morning, it's where it's at, you'll get touched, you'll get blessed, because how many you know uh, that those who refresh others are themselves refreshed, uh, the Bible tells us that, so it's awesome, so, so the New Testament doesn't specify how, but there is a clue, there's a man actually in the Old Testament who kind of epitomizes worship. He's actually in rabbinical and in Christian teaching. He's like the worshiper. He's the one that, he's the archetype of worship. And uh, if you haven't guessed who he is yet, he's got an awesome name. Uh, there you go, that gives it away a little bit. Uh, but he's, he's the man when it comes to worship. And, and he's actually, he's an archetype. He's a, he's a, he's a picture of, of, even of Jesus, actually. Uh, he's a forerunner of the Messiah. His name is David. And, uh, and uh, what's interesting about David is that, yes, he's this amazing worshiper, this amazing king, but he's incredibly flawed. He's actually a very, a very uh, ordinary man. In fact, no, not worse than ordinary. Because like, ordinary is not a murderer and an adulterer, right? That shouldn't be ordinary. He's, he did some terrible things in his life. And yet we, he's, he's held up as this, this forerunner of Christ. He's held up as this amazing man of God, this, this ultimate warrior, this ultimate worshiper, this ultimate sinner. It's, it's, it's incredible, but it's, it's awesome because it, it, I don't know about you, but that encourages me. Because if, if David, who's an adulterer and a murderer and he's, he's done all this wrong stuff, he can be called as he is in Acts 13, 22. So in the New Testament, looking back, it says, God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. Wow. A man after God's own heart. That's what I want to be. That's what I want us to be, men and women who are after God's own heart. And I think we can learn a lot from David. So we're going to do that today. We're going to learn some lessons and worship from David. You ready? Turn to your neighbor and say, are you ready? 
Turn to your other neighbor and say, yes. <laughs> yes, you are ready. Awesome. Okay, so first lesson from King David is actually from before he's a king. It's to, we need to learn to worship in the hidden place. Worship in the hidden place. See, before David played before the king, before he slew Goliath, before he became Israel's greatest king, he worshipped where nobody was looking. He was a simple shepherd boy who developed his love for God, who developed his heart of worship, who developed his skills on the harp while he was overlooking the flocks. Just some simple sheep, a few lambs gambolling about because it was spring. And David wrote some of the most incredible words ever written. Here's some, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And it goes on. One of the most beautiful passages ever written was penned by this young shepherd boy in worship. There would have been, he would have actually sung it. There would have been a song. We don't, we don't have the, the, the notated music. Um, but he was singing to his God in the secret place. I want to tell you this morning that praise and worship isn't about what happens up here. It's about what happens at home, in the car, when you're out for a walk, just in your bedroom with some music or an instrument or even nothing, just your heart lifted up to God, worshiping Him. That's where it begins and ends. You see, there would be no King David. There would be no slayer of Goliath. There would be no, no boy who comes to the battle. There would be no, no, no David who plays before Saul if there wasn't first a David who worshiped in the fields and gave his heart to God. Because remember that passage that I read to you from Acts, a man after my own heart, he will do everything I want him to do. God trusted David's heart because he saw him in the secret place. He knew that his heart was completely for him. That was the foundational time of David's life. That was the foundation that he became the greatest king of Israel on, was his, just his worship in the quiet place, his worship away from everybody else. And I just want to challenge you, do you worship in secret? Do you take some time every week, even every day, just to praise God? It can be first thing in the morning. It can be late at night. It can be during the day. But I think we need to set some time aside just to worship and adore God, just for who He is, for no other reason. Not, not coming to Him with the list of things you want to do that we often do in prayer, but just to worship Him. Let's develop that in our hearts. So that's the first thing, is David learned to worship in the quiet, in the secret place. The second thing is he worshiped in the Spirit. We need to worship in the Spirit. There's this amazing passage, I'll read it to you now, from 1 Samuel, chapter 16. It says, Now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, so he was the king in this time, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Saul's attendants said to him, See, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let 
our Lord commanded servants here to search for someone who can play the lyre. He will play when the evil spirit from God comes on you, and you will feel better. So Saul said to his attendants, find someone who plays well and bring him to me. Then we skip down to verse 23. So they found David. Uh, Whenever the spirit from God came on Saul, David would take up his lyre and play. Then relief would come to Saul. He would feel better and the evil spirit would leave him. That's cool. Because David didn't just play well. He played with the spirit of God moving through him and in him. There was, he was skilled. Like we know that because they said find someone who was skilled at it. And I think actually our worship we can practice. Uh, you know, I'm not just talking about the musos, but actually you, when you practice singing and praising, there's something you, you tune into him more easily. You can actually hear the voice of God more readily. But there's, there's a truth here that David didn't just make music. He worshipped it in the spirit. And as he did that, the evil spirits had to flee. Freedom came to Saul because of what David did. And 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There was freedom for Saul because of what David brought in his spirit. There is freedom for people around you when you worship, when you praise Him, when you bring something that, that connects heaven to earth. You bring a, a freedom to those around you. Did you realize that? Even as we sing together here, as you worship, there's freedom going to those around you. There's power when we worship. And there's nothing like it, actually. You know, we, we often, in our, in our Western mindset, we think, oh, if I, if I work hard enough, if I, if I do this, if I practice this, if I throw enough money at it, if I, if I talk to the right people, if I get... You know, I can change things. But often things don't change until we get heaven into that situation. When actually we, we call upon the name of God and our worship, and then something shifts. Then something changes. That's the, the power of God in worship. I, I can't explain it. We can't. It's inexplicable. It's like, it's like music itself. Like we don't, we don't actually know how music moves us the way it does. But ever since, you know, biblical times, the people of God have worshipped with music. And that's why they're, they're, there's like a counterfeit in the world. It's called a rock concert. <laughs> and, and you can be moved at a rock concert just by the music. Because there is something in that. But that needs to be combined with the Spirit of God. And, and that's what David does here. He, he, he combines both his skill with music and the Spirit. And when that happens, the enemy has to flee. You know, you're, maybe you just need to be worshiping through that challenge that you're facing right now. Maybe there's, there's stuff in your world and you're like, I don't know how to fix this. Maybe you just need to worship God and lay it at the altar and trust that He will do something in that space. It's interesting also that this, this spirit kept coming to Saul. And it kept getting chased away by David. But it kept coming back. And then, and then David would have to come and play again. An, we have to keep worshiping God. It's not like we just, oh, well, I, I did that once. I worship God. And the stuff improved. But So then I thought, I'm fine now. Uh, no, no, no. You keep, you keep going into that place. Because how many of you know that 
You face one battle, you overcome one obstacle, there'll be something else. There's a bigger devil just waiting around the corner. There's something further you've got to overcome. We've got to keep, we just got to get that pattern of coming into God's presence and worshiping Him. Is that good? You've gone a bit quiet on me, church. Is that good? All right. So we worship in the secret place. We worship in the Spirit. Then we worship with abandon. You know I've got to go there. David. David is, is, is the epitome of worship because he was free in his worship. To give you the backstory, we're going to pick it up in 2 Samuel 6, but David has become king of Israel, and he realizes the Ark of the Covenant, which is kind of the, where the presence of God dwells in the Old Testament, isn't in Jerusalem and isn't in the holy city where it should be, so he aims to bring it back. He tries to bring it back by putting it on a cart with some oxen pulling it in, and it doesn't go very well for him or the people who are pulling the cart. In fact, one of the guys, Uzzah, the, the cart kind of hits some potholes and it looks like the ark's going to fall down. So Azza puts his hand out to try and stop it and he gets struck down by God. Yeah, I'd be crying too if that happened. Uh, and it was bad, right? Uh, and, and the people of God were like, what, what? And David was very disappointed. He was angry. Um, and so then uh, he reads some of the Bible and he works out that he's actually doing it all wrong. And he, and he, and he brings it in the right way. And then we pick it up here uh, in 2 Samuel 6. Uh, verse 12, now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom. So he left the, the ark at this household because he's like, I don't want to touch this thing. So he just left it at some random dude's house uh, just on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And then he hears that things are going really well for this random dude. And he's like, wow, well, I want that blessing in, in our house. I want that in the kingdom. So he, he brings it in. The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. We need to get some trumpets in here. Come on. Oh, there's, there's an extravagance to David's worship. One, two, three, four, five, six. Let's kill a bull and a calf. One, two, three, four, five, six. Let's do it again. Let's kill a bull. Like, we don't know exactly how close it is. I hope it wasn't too far because uh, that's going to get messy. But there's, a, there's an extravagance to David's worship that, that you're going to sacrifice every six steps. And there's an abandon. He's dancing with all his might. Think about this. David's the king. Okay, we actually have a queen in New Zealand. Yes, Queen Elizabeth II. Can you imagine? Like, it doesn't really bear thinking. But, but you, you think about how we, how we think about the queen. Do we, th- do we expect the queen to be more dignified or less dignified than us, the commoners? More dignified, Right? Far more dignified. She sits on her, stands on her balcony in Buckingham Palace, which I, I, we checked it out. Didn't see the Queen. She didn't hear I was coming. Otherwise, she would have got out there and waved. But uh, yeah, she, she, you know, we expect her to be more dignified. We expect her to be prim and proper. And, and that's kind of the, the expectation we have on our Queen, right? David, he flips it on its head. Like instead of toning back his worship in front of the people, he ramps it up. 
He's like, he does the opposite. While the whole nation is watching, he's dancing with all his might. I don't know how good a dancer David was. He's just busting out his moves, but he's, he was doing it in front, in front of the whole, why are you laughing? <laughs> he does, he, and he does it in his linen ephod, which isn't quite undies, but it's his undergarment. I said undergarment. This is, there's something profoundly challenging to us in our staid Western, uh, you know, conservatism that we have in the church today. We've seen how, how David worships in secret. We've seen how he worships in this, and he touches the Spirit of God. And now we're seeing how he just moves in freedom. Like, the people must have thought he lost his marbles. This is not kingly. This is frankly embarrassing, David. What are you doing? You know what? God loves it. I'll say it again. God loves it. He loves what David is doing. He delights in it. And there's this, there's actually a kind of two contrasting and parallel stories within this chapter. I alluded to the first one before. You see, David initially was starting to bring the, the Ark of the Covenant in on these oxen. And, uh, and Uzzah puts his hand out. And it says there, when he does that, God strikes down Uzzah. And it says in 2 Samuel 6, 7, he says he struck him down because of his irreverent act. His irreverent act. Compare that with the second trip when David comes in and they, uh, and they bring it on poles and they bring it in properly. David is seemingly dancing in an irreverent way. Seemingly. What do I mean? Well, David, David's wife, Michal, who's watching from the window, she says this. How the king of Israel, this is oozing with sarcasm, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants, as any vulgar fellow would. The, the Hebrew word here to describe David's immodesty is gala, which means to uncover nakedness. It's a term built in with sexual overtones and essentially means that he displayed his private parts. Get this. He displayed his private parts. That's, and yet, that is not irreverent worship. Now, I don't want you, please, this morning. No, well, don't go there. But... Uh, it, 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 just, it just flips it on its head. What was irreverent was them not following what God had stipulated, the way that they should bring the ark in. And was a was a kind of a flippant, oh, we'll just do what's easiest and we'll just do what's most convenient and, 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 that, and they get struck down. How often do we come to church? We just do what's most convenient. Well, it's not very convenient for me to raise my hands. It's not very convenient for me to jump up and down. It's not very convenient for me to sacrifice in my praise. So I'm just going to do that. Oh, or are we going to do what's inconvenient, which is breaking out because it kills the flesh? And we'll talk about that another time. But there's something that David's just extravagant. And God doesn't say, oh, that's a bit irreverent because you're displaying yourself, David. No, he, he loves it. <laughs> he loves it. And, and, and someone who doesn't love it is his wife. And it doesn't go very well for her. She, she gets cursed. She, she, yeah, she loses the ability to have children, which as the queen, you know, the mother of the nation, is a pretty big thing. 
So, I don't know, this passage just messes with my brain about what is kingly, what is worshipful, what is reverence before God. And I hope it messes with you too. David, he's taken off his, and this is the other thing about this. He's a king, right? But he's taken off his royal robes, and he's actually dancing in a, the ephod is a priestly garment. So he's dancing in a, in a priestly undergarment. So what David is saying is, first and foremost, I'm not a king. I'm a priest. First and foremost, I am God's. I dance before him. I don't, I, don't, I don't do it for the crowd in my kingly robes. I do it for God in my priestly ones. See, there's a dying to self there as well. That, you know, we come to church and we're like, oh, what do people think of me when I worship? Now, David doesn't give a rip because he's dancing before God in his priestly robes because he's taken off that mantle. You know, when we come to church, we take off, you're not a, you're not a doctor, you're not a surgeon, you're not a, a teacher, you're not a lawyer, you're not a, any of these things. You're a child of God in the house. And, and we are actually a royal priesthood. The Bible and the New Testament tells us that we are all priests. So don't go, don't go ripping off your, uh, you know, and getting your undergarments. Because remember, we don't have the Old Testament law, so we don't actually have priests. I'm not wearing my priestly undies uh, today. <laughs> just, 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 see, I don't have, I don't have a special pair that I just saved for Sunday. Uh, no, I'm not. But I made a linen, they're very comfortable. <laughs> but this. There's this, there's this imagery, uh, uh, also a David, like he's, he's a king, but he's also a priest. And that kind of foreshadows Jesus as well, who was the priestly king. There's so much in this passage, but the, the, the heart of it is that David worships with abandon. He just gives it all for God. And, he, and I think we should too. So, number four. Number four, it was we we, 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 we've, we've considered that David worships by himself, just in a quiet place. He worships in the spirit. He worships with abandon. And number four, he worships regardless of circumstance. There's an incredible story, a moving story. David, as I said earlier, he's a flawed man. And so most of you may know this story, but for those who don't, David, um, when the kings are supposed to be going to war, he's not, and he's hanging out on his roof because um, that's where you hang out when you've got a big palace, I guess. And, uh, and, he's, and he spots um, this hot woman, and he wants her, and he takes her. And she's already married, so he commits adultery with her. And then it gets worse because he realizes he's done wrong, and so he arranges for her husband to get killed. Uh, so he commits a m- m- murder as well as adultery. And, and then uh, Nathan, who's a prophet, man, you want to be a prophet in the Old Testament. You've got to say some hard stuff. Nathan come, confronts the king. And he says, hey, David, what you've done is not right. And he tells this cool story. He does it very cleverly about a, a farmer who has a whole lot. And then there's one guy who has just one lamb. And, he, and the farmer takes the one lamb off the other guy. And, and then uh, David goes, that's not fair. And then he goes, yeah, David, that, uh, that's you. Uh, and and uh, David realizes. And this is the beautiful thing about David. He He's, he's so humble and contrite. He doesn't just go off with Nathan's head <laughs> away from me. No, no, he, he receives that. But there's a consequence. Like that, David repents, which is good, but there's still a consequence. And Nathan says, no, look, it's okay. You're not going to die because actually probably David should have been killed. He took another man's life. He, you know, he, as a 
the law would have said he should die, but God is merciful to him. But he says, but there is still a consequence. The child, see Bathsheba, is pregnant to David, and the child is going to die. And that's hard. You know, that's really hard. And then we pick it up in 2 Samuel 12, verse 15. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife, Uriah was Bathsheba's husband, Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought while the child was still living, he wouldn't listen to us when we spoke to him. How can we now tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his attendants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead, he asked. Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request, they served him food, and he ate. I just have the keys up. David's response here is, is incredible. That's amazing. You know, he obviously loves his child. He desperately seeks for the salvation of his child from this illness that struck him down. For seven days, he fasts and he prays and he wears sackcloth and ashes and he, he just cries out to God. But when the child dies, he just gets up and he cleans himself up because he's been lying around in sackcloth and ashes. He prepares himself for worship and then he goes and he worships. After, after losing a child, his first act is to go and praise God and to thank God. I don't know what space you would be in after you'd lost a child, but uh, that challenges me. He doesn't, he doesn't curse God. He doesn't blame God. He doesn't rant and rave at God, which is, I think, our natural response. He doesn't run away from God, which is another one of our responses, would be to stuff you, God. Oh, no, no. He runs to God, and he worships him with all he has. And I, I imagine it was a pretty broken worship that David brought that day. I don't think he was dancing around like he was earlier in joy, but he was still worshiping God. That's next level worship. That's, that's worship from a man who has a heart that is after God's. That in every circumstance, he's worthy of our praise. In every circumstance, in every hardship, in every trial, in, in whatever we face, we still worship him. That's just blows my mind. I don't know what's going on in your world. Maybe there's some hard stuff that you're facing. Maybe there's some illness. Maybe there's some challenge in your relationships. Maybe there's financial stuff that's hard. Maybe, that, you know, there could be any number of things which are difficult. I get that. That doesn't mean we don't worship God. That doesn't mean we don't bring Him praise. That doesn't mean we don't. The face of it might look different. We need to be real before God. 
but we still need to choose to worship in every circumstance. The priority worship is incredible in this as well. Because he does it before he breaks his fast. You notice afterwards he says, go, go and prepare a meal. David had been fasting for seven days. He was hungry. <laughs> seven days, you'd be hungry. But he chooses to worship God before then. Yet again, he, he dies to his flesh. He says, I'm not going to, my spirit needs to worship. My spirit, man, needs to connect with God before anything else. You know, food, my body, my needs, they can wait. I think that's the priority of worship in our lives. God knows you've got needs. He knows what's ahead of you in this week. He knows how busy you are at work. He knows the, the things that you, you want to see happen in your family. He knows that your schedule but he wants to be worshipped before then. Sunday isn't the last day of the week. It's the first. We come to church on a Sunday to worship him, to set the platform. We say, God, I'm before all the stuff that I need to get sorted, before I feed myself physical food, I'm going to worship you. I'm going to give you my all. I'm going to praise you. I want us to take some time. We, we, we've worshipped this morning, but I, I believe we want to go there again. And we're just going to worship Him in this place. And, and I want to encourage you. I don't know which of those points challenges you the most. Worshipping in, in, in the quiet place, worshipping in the Spirit, worshipping with the abandon, or just worshipping despite your circumstances. But I think we need to go to a deeper level of worship. So why don't you stand to your feet and invite the band up. Cool. So we're just going to sing this song in response. We're going to worship Him and let Him define who we are in this place. Awesome. Thanks, team.